but receive Jesus and or commit their life to the Lord. I mean, first-time people receiving Jesus as well as committing. Yeah, exciting. You know, we, we heard the story of uh, Seth. He's, he was here in the first service and just shared the miracle of God, someone who was really in bad shape and really by a miracle of God, prayer and just God leading, he found the right doctor, the right treatments and whatnot. And he was just saying, I totally attribute the fact that he was on the, you know, literally the steps of uh, death. I mean, he was, he had lost over like almost 25, 30% of his uh, body weight and he was just going down. I mean, it was serious. It was really a big deal. And now today, like he says, I am almost 100%. And he was just testifying it's all for Jesus. Amen. That was, yeah, that was exciting. And, um, you know, I was just hearing the story uh, of, a, of a mom who uh, went on a trip and just God doing a miracle work, just really interacting with her daughter and her daughter interacting with a dad for the first time like in 20 years. And just a miracle reunion because of prayer and what God was doing. I, I just want you to know we're praying God is answering prayer, and some pretty amazing things are happening. Can you see know that? Now, I'm going to pray in a moment. We're going to turn to John uh, chapter 14, but I want us to continue. I'm giving you homework here. We're going to pray together, but I want to continue to pray for Leah. I mean, uh, again, for the battle for Sally, the battle. We have Mark uh, battling. We have people who have some pretty significant diseases that are going on right now, and, and others. I mean, there's, there is... A number of people, and I also want to remember we're going to pray for um, Dick and Lynn. I know they're going through a lot right now. Very, uh, you know them as mom and pop, really uh, very important in our life. Uh, just amazing people. And then also uh, for um, uh, Jojo or Joanna, uh, our 18-month-old little baby who just started chemo yesterday, and is just really in a battle for her life. And so we want to just pray specifically, and as you are praying throughout the week, that God will just minimize the, I mean, chemotherapy can really, you know, wear on you. And the you know, little girl, she's already been through so much. She, she's already had a uh, procedure, surgery on uh, Thursday, then again a procedure on Friday, and then Saturday chemotherapy. That's a lot for a little baby. So can you and I just agree for God's just direction there in prayer? And so we're going to pray now, but then I want you to take all this home with you, right? And keep praying. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, you know, again, as we, um, we think about these individuals, these are people we really do care about, Lord. And some we've been praying diligently. And God, we're going to keep knocking on this door, and we're going to keep on fighting because we believe what you can do, Lord. And so we ask that a miracle will happen, Lord, an amazing miracle of your healing. Lord, for Leah, Lord, for, for Sally, for Mark, Lord, for so many others that are battling significant diseases. For Dick and Lynn that, Lord, I know they're going through some really uh, rough health issues. And again, help them to recover. Help them to know of the presence of the Lord. And Lord, as we think of uh, Jojo and, and just mom and dad in that hospital room, I see them there and I just pray you'll be present. Lord, just minimize the effects of chemotherapy, but also maximize the power of that to destroy that cancer. And we pray, Lord, that the end result, Lord, will be the cancer will be removed. The end result will be uh, Jojo will just be able to continue on with just an amazing life that you would give her. 
And so God, continue to bring wisdom and direction and utilize these amazing doctors and nurses and all those that are around this family. But more important, Lord, as, we, as you work with them and, and are providing, be present with that family. Protect them and watch over them. And Lord, as we open up the word now, just provide just understanding and insight. Help us to connect with this series that leads us towards Easter. In Jesus' name, amen? amen. Thank you for praying. You know, and, and uh, if you'd like to do more prayer, I want to invite you. We do have a prayer chain. We have people, prayer warriors. And just let us know you want to be part of that, and we will connect you, and it's so important to be part of that. So, again, thank you uh, for I'm still sitting. I'll be sitting here for a while because of just still recovering from surgery. And I, we have a new online uh, presence, uh, so we're kind of excited about some of the improvement technology. So, we welcome our online uh, congregation that's kind of gathering and growing, so that's pretty exciting. If, you, if for whatever reason you make the mistake of not being here, um, we, uh, <laughs> you can always go online, praise God. We begin this series, uh, we're going to look at the next uh, several weeks, uh, really out of uh, John 14, right? Verse 6, and so you already know the three parts. Let's see how good you are. Jesus is? Okay, we'll do it together. Jesus is? The truth? The light. There you go. You got three parts right there. You have the title of all, so you are really way ahead of the game. You know what we're going to be doing in three weeks. But let's look at John uh, 14 and those first six verses and kind of connect with that. Obviously, Jesus is talking to us, not just the disciples. You have to recognize that how this is written, this is also written for us. And it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And we know that place is called heaven. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's an amazing promise and commitment. And where I go, you know. The way you know. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, very powerful, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Can you say amen to that? Very, very strong statement. Powerful statement. It begins by really directing the fact that Jesus is the way. And these three statements that he's the way, the truth, and the life. You know, when you look at that and you begin to see that, just as a quick summary, when Jesus says, I am the way, he's really describing that metaphor. He's the path, he's the road, he's the bridge, he's the transport. He is the way from here on earth, he is the way to heaven. And so that's a very critical statement. He's the one that guides us, and he gives us, you want to remember, exact, specific instructions. He navigates us the way. He is the navigator, so no one will ever get lost to get on the way. Then he's the truth. We'll talk about that more next week, but he's the source of this intimate knowledge and relationship of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If you and I want to understand the truth, and 
I think in the world we live in today, I want to make this statement. The Lord speaks truth. And there's something here I want you to understand. Jesus has never, nor will he ever, lie to you. You know, you think about it, this is a critical understanding. Jesus has never been dishonest, he has never been deceptive, and he has never lied to you. And that's important. Because you think about it, in the world we live in today, a lot of people are challenging some of the statements as if somehow they're not true. That they are not truth. Now, I want you to get this because this is kind of, this is critical. If you and I buy into the idea that any of the statements that Jesus made are not true, then really that means what he said was dishonest or deceitful or incorrect. Here's, here's, the, here's the piece about this is that if that is accurate, then how can we know anything else is true about what he said? Well, we know in the world we live in today, if an authority figure is caught lying, for example, if we know, and there's lots of, of history of this, if, uh, if someone in the district attorney's office or a police officer or someone who is in any position really of authority is caught lying even once, what does that do? It puts into question everything else they've done. And now the statement comes back, is anything you said true? And literally it blows up life because we know that if that lie is found out, then they throw out everything that that person has ever done because now they put it into question. And that person might say, well, I've only lied this one time. Well, that's kind of a crazy statement. I've only lied one time. And how do we know? If you can lie once, you can lie twice. So this is important to understand. Jesus has never, ever lied. He has never, ever been dishonest or deceitful. And he said, I am the life. And we'll conclude that on Easter. I can't wait to get there. When he is speaking to you and I that he is life right now. Right now. In the first service, people received life right now. And then into eternity. So he's talking about both pieces. So you have life now, and then you have life into eternity, which leads into forever. And he is saying, the truth of it is, I am the only way, the only truth, the only resource for you to experience this eternity in the life. And again, that's a very strong statement in the world we live in today, because there are a lot of people who are opposing that and saying that isn't true. So you understand now why that is significant. And so Jesus is inviting you and I, and here's the deal, to either accept it or reject it. And here's again, there's no middle ground in this. Begin based on what we've talked about, and I think you get the logic behind it, you understand the, the principle of that and, and the, uh, well, the precept of it, is that it's either 100% you accept it or 100% you reject it. There is, again, no middle ground. You can't take 80% of what Jesus said and say, well, that's good, I'll call it good, 80%. And we're going to talk about that because a lot of people in the church today are navigating around the concept and the idea that, well, I, I'm, I'm okay with most of it, but not all of it. And I want to challenge that today. I want to challenge that from God's Word that it is so important that we understand it is an all-or-nothing deal. Now, Jesus made a statement along these lines, and he said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. I love this passage in Matthew chapter 7. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide, 
for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, this is a misunderstood passage. I mean, you almost get this impression like somehow there's this secret, narrow way, gate, highway that somehow is hidden someplace. That is not what this is saying. It is saying that the highway to hell is broad and wide. It's like California freeways. I was on the freeway there, 12 lanes across. I mean, it's crazy. It's like they got six or seven lanes on one side, six or seven lanes on the other side, and they're still stop-and-go traffic, 12 lanes. The highway to hell has traffic and is busy. That's what that is saying. And a lot of people are getting on that way. But there's this other side road, and we think of it like, where is that? Well, it's right there. If there was a middle road going right down there, it leads straight into heaven. Because what this is saying is that the way is narrow, not that it's difficult to be a Christian, not that it's difficult to find this this pathway, but that the problem is there is only one way. There are not 12 lanes. There is one lane. There is one option, one direction, one way. And here's what this is saying. Not everyone chooses that. But anyone can get on a freeway with 12 choices and get caught in traffic on top of it. So this is, this is critical. Jesus is saying, I am the way. I am the only way. I alone died for your sins. I alone died so that you can have this amazing gift of eternity. I alone died and rose victorious and conquered hell and death so that you can have and get on the right way. The only way. And so I, I'm sure you've noticed the steering wheels behind me and the posters around this place. And really it comes to the question and really kind of talks about really the concept of Jesus is the way. And the question is really right there. So who is steering the way in your life? Who is the one who has hold of the steering wheel? Who is in the driver's seat of your life? Who is in charge? And I love this word picture because cars are important to us. Can you say a minute of that? We love our cars. Do you remember your first car? Your first love affair? <laughs> Do you remember? I still remember. I passed my driving test, and the next day, my dad hands me the keys to the car. I'm 16 years old, and I took those keys, and I thought, freedom. Now, I wasn't a Christian at the time. I was a good Jewish boy, and I thought, Moses has just parted the Red Sea. <laughs> I have been delivered, and I'm gone, and I still remember getting in my first car. You'll love this. Oh, I wish I was online looking at pictures of the car. My first car was a Ford Fairlane, 1965. I wish I had it today. Oh, man, I saw some of those Ford Fairlanes kind of fixed up a little bit. Mine was fixed up a little bit. I had kind of did a little work on the engine and painted it and got new upholsteries. I mean, that was my first car. It had to be absolutely cool. At that time, I would have said groovy. (laughs) Oh, it was so fun. 
Uh, it was an amazing time. You know the next most amazing moment in my life? Maybe the most scary moment is when my firstborn became 16. <laughs> and I handed him the keys to the car. And he felt the same thing I did. Freedom! I felt oppression. <laughs> I thought, oh, Lord, Jesus, my son is driving away. My prayer life really expanded significantly. I was careful, though. I didn't hand them a cool car. <laughs> I handed them a Cadillac town car, you know, a boat. So I figured if they got in an accident, the other car would always lose. <laughs> I still remember my third son, my youngest, and it was kind of inevitable, the hand-me-down town car. And he looked at me and said, no, no, Dad. Yes, son, here. Enjoy. Great motivation for saving money. Um, cars are a big deal to us. I mean, we think about that. Our transportation, I, I was thinking about some of the things I went through uh, with my parents and the fact that a time came where they couldn't drive anymore. And I still remember the, the whole conversation of that transition in their life where I still remember the words being said, what am I going to do? I'm losing my, and I remember my mom saying, I'm losing my freedom. But I said, we have to make that transition. And, and it's hard. We value our freedom. We value our liberty. We value being in control. We want to get up and go when we want to go. I think, you know, the idea of this, you know, concept that we'd be like Europe and we wouldn't need cars anymore. Americans would do miserable with that because we're not used to hopping subways or trains or things like that and waiting for schedules. We're used to getting into our car. Matter of fact, today we get into cars and we don't even have to drive them hardly anymore, right? We just talk to our cars. Take me to church, and the car drives you to church. Can you see into that? I have a couple friends that have these Teslas. Oh, what a, I, I, would, I could fall in love with a Tesla. Pulls out of the driveway for you. Drives you to wherever you want to go. Protects you as you want to go. Wow. We love that. We love the technology. We love our cars. We love the freedom. We love being in control. Because whoever has a steering wheel is in control. Right? Whoever has control of the steering wheel is the one. Because you know what? It's hard for us. I want to decide how fast I'm going to go. I want to decide when I'm going to turn or not turn. I want to decide on the route. I want, I mean, we really like the idea of having this opportunity to, you know, kind of do what we want to do. And I think here's the, here's the thing that for a lot of us here today, we want Jesus in the car, but we're not sure we want him driving the car. You know how hard it was when I came home from the hospital and the doctor said to me, you can't drive for three weeks? I said, what am I going to do? You're going to let your wife drive. Now, she's a great driver. But she doesn't, I mean, no one can drive my truck like I can drive my truck. My truck has some very special, unique characteristics that only I know. 
there's just a certain amount of pressure on the brake, you know, and there's a way you accelerate, and you got to turn it just right, and that is, I mean, I love my truck. And to let any of you or any family member or even one of my kids drive that truck, that is difficult. It's hard to sit in the passenger seat. And I've driven with some of you, and you have a hard time sitting in the passenger seat. You want to drive. I think that's become part of the struggle that we have with Jesus. Because the minute we say, God, you have the steering wheel, then he's making the decisions. He's deciding how you're going to spend your money. He's deciding where you're going to go, the work you're going to do, the way you're going to have a schedule. All of a sudden, he comes in your life, and now everything that you might want kind of gets a little bit difficult because he's in charge and you're not. And you know what? I think a lot of us believers here in this room really do struggle with control. Giving Jesus the steering wheel is not easy, but here's what I know. It leads to the way. And only if you give Jesus the steering wheel can you get on the road to the way. I was thinking about some illustrations, and I have um, the big book here, uh, AA's book. And uh, I got this, uh, and the reason why I got this particular one is because this is an exact remake, uh, the, it's the anniversary edition, of uh, the one that was originally written in 1939. You see, if you look at the current, they call the big book or your AA book, it is, it's changed. Uh, it's been rewritten, it's, you know, all the words are kind of changed and whatnot, and you start comparing them and I worked with this stuff for a long time. Uh, I just I saw this deluxe edition, uh, 75th anniversary, blah blah blah. I thought I wanted the exact words because because I wanted to see. So what was the original intent? And I got to tell you, the, the language in here is very different than the language of today. It's like our CR people, right? You you know that uh, Daniel, Cindy over here. Raise your hand real quick. I love what these guys are doing. CR is an absolutely amazing ministry. Yeah, it's really exciting. But I was thinking about just the struggles of addiction, and, and it has to do with control, right? We're really dealing with the concept of control here. And, you know, it's one of those things that people get trapped. They think they have control, but they really don't, and they get trapped by drugs and alcohol, uh, sexual addiction, um, I mean, workaholic. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I think Americans today are more addicted than they ever have been in, in, in the entire history of, of our society. Um, my guess is that probably 80% or higher of Americans are addicted to something. And, and my guess is if you and I had a real private conversation, we would soon discover you're addicted to something. I mean, there, there's probably something going on. I think I, I've discovered it. I mean, in my life, I'm just... I, I understand that. I mean, I, I know what it's like to be addicted to things, and I, I have, boy, God's been so gracious. But, but what I like about this, and, you know, when I look at the, and I understand the meetings, everything that they do in these 12 steps, and what I love about CR, they so integrate God's Word in these 12 steps. This is not a Christian book. But the 12 steps are kind of laid out, and they're really, it's a way of freedom. Because here's the deal, you're giving, the, ultimately you're giving control to somebody else. You think you can have control, but you really don't. And, and people who get trapped, I mean, this book doesn't say, listen, 
if you try really, really hard and change your attitude, have a really, really good attitude, you'll stop taking that drug. You'll stop drinking that alcohol. You'll stop looking at pornography. You just got to really try harder. It doesn't say that. Because we know it doesn't work. Because you're still in control. Here's what it does say, step one. Realize we are powerless and our lives are unmanageable and, in fact, out of control. Then it goes on, step two. And step two says, we came to believe a power greater than myself could restore us to sanity. In other words, I have to give, in fact, control over to something else. And here's the 1939 version. Decide to turn our will and life over to the care of God not a higher power or some other force, but over to God. Isn't that great? I mean, how many people have, you know, asked the question, why can't I stop? Why, I, I mean, I want to stop. Why can't I stop? I mean, I, I say and I feel these things in my moment, and, I, and how many times I've heard someone say to me, never again! That's it. The last time I'm going to do this, this is the last time I'm going to look at that ugly pornography. This is the last time I'm going to take that drink. This is the last time I am going to do that drug. Never, ever again. <laughs> and that's the way to death. Because a week later, we're doing it again. And we're beating ourselves up. And, and it is a slippery slope to a lot of misery. And it's all about control. Do you see that? It's all about making a decision who's going to have the steering wheel. Because the fact is, until you understand you really need Jesus in your life, you're not going to get off that road and onto the way. You know, Scripture has the, I mean, I love Romans chapter 7. Listen to this, verse 23. It speaks directly to this thing and to the struggle that we have and why it is we do it again and again and we violate. And even things that we believe and value are important, we still violate them. Listen to this passage. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. There's a battle going on, right? And this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. A slave to addic addiction that is still in me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death and addiction? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you say amen to that? We need to give Jesus the steering wheel over every day. You know, that's something you learn. If you want to break free, it's a daily event. You wake up every morning and say, okay, God, you're driving, not me. You're in charge, not me. And sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's a struggle. I've learned over the years, because I've struggled with that. In my beginning years as a believer, I struggled with this stuff. And the idea of daily sacrificing, daily following, daily giving over to Jesus. It took me a while to figure it out. I want you to know I figured it out. And every now and then, I might not do it so well. And I am so thankful 
that I have the Spirit of God. I have people who care about me and love me who are so quick to remind me when I'm not doing well. Can you see some of that? <laughs> That's why God gave me Pastor Ken. Praise God. <laughs> no, I, I love that. Our friendship is absolutely a diamond. And I have other people like that in my life. I have so many amazing people. I mean, my team is absolutely amazing. I'm so thankful for my team. It's hard work. You know, it's interesting. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross daily. It repeats that over and over again. Scripture tells us daily, every day. Matthew 16, 24. And that's the key. I love God today. I got to love God tomorrow. I've got to get up Tuesday and I've got to make the declaration I love God and that I will live for Him each day that I get, get up. And I have to give Him the steering wheel. I've got my kryptonite here. Can you see a minute of that? A quick disclaimer, if you're from Krypton, be careful. If you're from Krypton, this will weaken you very quickly. So once you know that. You know, my kryptonite, especially as a new believer, I was thinking about my beginning years when I first received Jesus in my 20s. Um, it was hard. You know what my kryptonite was? A lot of past hurt and anger that was internal and control. My control was because I didn't want to get hurt again. And I still remember uh, just being a brand new believer. And, I, and this was hard for me because I received Jesus and my life blew up. Because all of a sudden, the friends I had, I had to lose. I couldn't hang out with them. I mean, I was hanging out with people who were doing things like partying. And, and I mean, there was everything opposite of what you would expect someone who is a follower of Jesus to do. And I realized that I'm going to have to, like, I was in an apartment. I had three, uh, there was three of us together, friends. And I realized, I'm going to have to move. At the same time I received Jesus, my parents were getting divorced. I was losing my family. And at the same time I received Jesus, my family got mad at me because I'm a Jewish boy. And all of a sudden, my grandmas and my grandpas and everyone around me is going, we don't want to talk to you anymore. And all, so here it is. Receive Jesus. And all of a sudden, I looked around. I am all alone. Literally. I'm losing my friends. And on top of that, it was within a few weeks my girlfriend came to me and said, I'm leaving you. I lost my girlfriend. I lost my friends. I lost my family. And then I got noticed. My, the two friends at the apartment said, you need to get out of here. We don't want you here. Where am I going to go? I mean, that's great. Receive Jesus and all of a sudden lose everything. I was a little bit upset with God. And I can still remember the depression at that time like I've never felt before. I felt so alone. Ever felt that alone? Ever felt like everyone's left you, deserted you, walked away from you? I mean, who am I supposed to talk to? I mean, I was new to the church and, you know, the whole idea of church. I mean, I'm a Jewish boy. What, what do I know about church? You know, I don't know what to do. And, you know, there's this pastor and, you know, I'm scared to death of him anyway. I mean, it's like, go talk to a pastor. I mean... Oh, God, that, you must be really in bad shape, right? And so I, I don't know what to do. I got, I hit bottom. I, I'm not going to say that I was going to kill myself, but I was starting to have thoughts of like, I don't want to, if this is what it means, I, I don't want this. 
I was thinking, have I made a mistake? Maybe I shouldn't be a believer. No one really cares about me or loves me. I have no place to live. And I mean, I was having an unbelievable pity party. I mean, it was going on for weeks and weeks, and I was getting deeper and deeper. I mean, I was digging a hole here, and it was just not going away. And I was going to church. I was listening. I was, man, Sundays were great. I felt invigorated. And then there was Monday. Right? Finally, I got pretty depressed. I remember I did, you know, like what you're supposed to do. I called Mom. And Mom kind of listened to me, and, I mean... My mom was great. I mean, she, my Jewish mom, she's listening to me talk, and I'm talking about how sad life is, and I'm really complaining, and on and on I'm going. And she knew about all this stuff with Jesus. And finally, I'll never forget what she said to me over the phone. She goes, Steve, I thought you were a, a Christian. I thought you said your God was a big God. Isn't he big enough to help you overcome this? What? <laughs> Mom, I don't want to hear that. I want you to feel sorry for me. And she said, you know, maybe you ought to go talk to someone at the, that church you're going to. What? <laughs> this is my Jewish mom. And sure enough, I went to the pastor, and you know what he said to me? You need to surrender your life to Jesus. I said, but I thought I did that. He said, well... Maybe a little bit more. I still remember praying to God, saying, God, oh, God, I need some help. I need some place to go. You realize within a week of that prayer, I got a phone call. I, this Eric, never forget Eric and his family, called me and said, true story. This, this blew me out of the water. God told us to call you. You don't know us, but we know you. And we saw you at church. God told us to call you and offer a room in our home for you to come and be with our family. I said, who are you? I'm Eric Zimmerman. This guy owned a refrigeration company. This guy was an amazing, lived in La Cañada, California. And he said, you come and you're going to live with us. I said, do you know I've been praying? He says, I know. God already spoke to me. And he said, we're going to help you learn what it means to be a believer in Jesus. And I lived in that home for over a year. And the Zimmermans guided me for an entire year. And I got to tell you, that meant everything. God answers prayer. And you know what? I lost a family, but I gained a family. I remember God speaking a word to me towards the end of that season that was one of those things that I will never forget. It was actually, it was, it was down the road, but I was starting, I was headed off to uh, uh, Bible, uh, um, well, actually, it's a, it's a Christian school, but I was going to uh, Azusa Pacific University, and I was about to get, uh, continue on with my education. I was about to make a switch, blah, blah, blah. God spoke to me this word. Jesus said to him, anyone who starts to plow and keeps looking back is of no use for the kingdom of God. That word was given to me back in my 20s. That has never left me. And I hear God saying to me, put your hand on the plow and keep going forward. Here's what I see right now is that you have some choices here. Who's going 
whose, whose hands are on the steering wheel. I think a lot, of, a lot of us here are rebellious. I think there's a rebellious heart in the church today. God, it's my car. I went and I bought it. I'm paying for it. I'm working for it. It's my car. These are my keys. And you know what? I can live the way I want to live. And I think there's a lot of people who come and show up and sort of hang out and you will even say the words, I'm a Christian, but the reality is it's my car. Let me tell you something. It's Jesus' car. You know who bought the car for you? Jesus. You know who gave you the resource to buy that car? Jesus. You who's going to keep that car running? Jesus. Well, wait a second. I'm the one who changes the oil. God gave you the oil. <laughs> you, you're not going to win that one. Because ultimately, you've got to recognize whose it is anyway. I think for a lot of people here, probably maybe more common, is you live with a divided heart. I think that's common in the church today. I think there's a lot of people where we struggle with the idea that I don't want to give over everything. A hundred percent. You've got to realize, I've already said this, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. A hundred percent is a hundred percent. Not 99%, not 98, 100%. And that's difficult. For some of us, you're okay. Here's a divided heart. I'm okay with Jesus in the car. But he ain't driving. He can kind of be a backseat driver occasionally. He can sit next to me and kind of guide me every now and then. But I am staying in the driver's seat. And you might even say, well, I, I, sometimes I give God the, the steering wheel. You know, this is only maybe 20% of the time. That's a divided heart. 20% of the time is divided. 10% is divided. 1% is divided. I want you to hear this word from God. He wants it all. And that's challenging to us. That is a really difficult kind of thing to do. Now, what I learned for myself, and in that season of my life, over that those first six to nine months of being a brand new believer, and then the entire year thereafter, and then it just continued to happen, I learned to surrender complete control to Jesus. And there was a moment in time, early on, where I said the words, made the commitment, Jesus, you're in charge. I trust you with my life and nobody else. I trust you. You are the way. You know, it's crazy to think any other way. I mean, we're, we're going to have communion in a moment. And I was thinking about the whole idea of, you know, Jesus, Jesus is not going to leave us lost. Jesus is not going to leave us alone. Jesus is not going to put you on roadway and somehow trick you or or, you know, put up some sign on crazy detour or something like that. It's straight. He says, get on the road, get on the way, straight shot. But I was thinking of this illustration because I, I've talked to a lot of people about cancer lately and stuff, and I was thinking about, can you imagine a doctor, for instance, diagnosing early stage melanoma cancer? And, okay, you know, that's something, if you understand cancer, early stage melanoma is something easily taken care of. 
Matter of fact, if you get that, you probably, you're looking at going to the doctor for maybe an hour or two, a, a simple procedure, and, you know, it, it'll save your life. And uh, it really, I mean, sure, it's, it's no fun getting any kind of cancer. And you might even say, man, I'm, that really upsets me. But here's the deal. You, you know, the, the, it can be fixed. Now, can you imagine that same doctor saying, yeah, you got this melanoma, and he says, ah, don't worry about it. You know what? What you need is just to have a real positive attitude. You need to just have a good diet, get some exercise, and, you know, just, just live life. You know, there's lots of options here. Just be more mindful about life. And guess what's going to happen to that melanoma? It's going to grow. And if you keep ignoring it, it's going to grow to the place we know that if you totally ignore it, it could grow to the place that it become inoperative. And then it could kill you. And it will. Jesus has said, there's a problem. But I'm not going to ignore you or leave you alone or suggest you do some crazy thing. I'm going to show you the way that you can overcome this disease, this sin, this thing that is not working in your life. All you got to do is let me drive the car, and here's what's going to happen. You are going to be fixed. You are going to experience the amazing gifts that God has for you. But here's the deal. It will never, ever happen until you give Jesus 100%. Until you come to that place, Romans chapter 7, the big book, my life is out of control, it's not manageable, nothing's working my way, I have only one option now, thank God, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That's the only answer. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Yeah, follow me, let me drive the car, let me get in control here. He could have said, you know, right, well, don't worry about it, not a big deal. You know, it's, it's, it's okay, just, just, just relax and ignore it. What did he say to the rich young ruler? Shows up and he, he wants to follow Jesus, so he says to the rich young ruler, you can follow me, but what do you got to do? You got to give up everything, you got to sacrifice and give up. Suppose Jesus said, you know what, just give up a little bit. He'd have so many rich young rulers following him. Because, you know, all he had to say was, don't worry about it, just give me a little bit. Just give me the 10%, you keep the other 90. But he said to this guy, because he knew this was about control, he said to the rich young ruler, he said to the woman caught in adultery, give it all up, stop doing what you're doing, and follow me, let me drive. And that was the only way that these people experience the amazing deliverance of God. It's the only way this thing works. Jesus is not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to leave you without an answer. He is the answer. In a moment, as we hand out the elements of communion, the body and the blood, the cup and the matzah, I want you to hold these things. Think about what we've talked about. Because I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians that is going to to just, I think, surprise you. And it's going to talk about communion in the next step because we're going to come to that end here in a moment. So hold the elements so that we can share together.
Lord, thank you as we prepare now to receive of these elements of your supper, of your communion, the body and the blood. I just pray, God, that we would be ready. You would stir in us a readiness, an anticipation for what you can do. In Jesus' name. Who be my anthem? Lord, when the world has fallen quiet, you stand beside me. Oh, here now, this grace, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's instruction for this moment we're about to share in called communion. This is taken from the message, Eugene Peterson. Jesus is the way, the only way to stay on the roadway. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. You realize so much of our life in Jesus revolves around this celebration. It's important. I received my instructions from the Master, which is Jesus himself, and passed them on to you. The Master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. We're used to hearing this. Now look what it says in the next couple passages, verses. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. The sacrifice of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. You'll be drawn back to this meal again and again until the Master returns, His second coming. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. This is real. This is important. I see the church becoming contemptful and how it is disrespecting communion and how we treat it. There was a problem in the church in Corinthians as well. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently, there it is, is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? So look at this last sentence. I love this. Examine your motives, test your heart, and come to this meal in holy awe. Let me say it this way. Give Jesus the steering wheel. Get out of the driver's seat and let him sit there. Is Jesus driving your life? Does he have the steering wheel in your life? 100%. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment? Before we receive of his body and the blood, that small piece of matzo, I want to give you opportunity to respond to this word. give you an opportunity to surrender to Jesus a hundred percent because if there's any peace that isn't and hasn't been given over to Jesus now is the moment this is the opportunity it's all or nothing Stop living a divided life. 
join with Jesus 100%. Heads are bowed for a moment of privacy. But if you know that this is something you need to and are ready to respond and say, Jesus, yes, I surrender my life 100%. I give everything to you right now today. I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Acknowledge what you need to do. Just put your hand up and leave it up there. Just say, okay, I'm looking. I'm examining. And God, you don't have 100%. But I'm going to give you 100% right now. is not an easy thing. Put your hand up. This is that moment. This is your opportunity between you and Jesus. Number of hands are lifted. Praise God. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that there's courage here and, and there's just understanding that says, okay, Lord, forgive me for not living my life 100% with you. And if you've lifted your hand, I want you to say those words to Jesus. I want you to say those words of asking God to forgive you for not living 100% with him you think of those areas that you have held back and you say okay God here it is I give it to you and Lord as this happens I know a miracle takes place because Lord the only way some things are ever going to change is when we give it all to you our marriages will change our heart our attitude will change for some of us we're going to be freed from addiction. For some of us, this is a deliverance. I pray for God's healing as we have given to you this, this peace. All of us. We hold in our hand the bread of life. And by your stripes we are healed. And we recognize that this small piece of matzah reminds us of this unbelievable sacrifice that you gave up your physical body. You gave up yourself to overcome and conquer death and hell. And so in receiving this with all respect and reverence and love and affection, Lord, we affirm who we are, believers in Jesus. And so we partake together of your body. Let's all partake together, church. And this cup that we hold, God, this amazing cup, as small as it is, what an amazing, powerful statement 
that, it's all washed away. The sin, the failure, the things of struggle, Lord, they are washed away by the blood of Christ. And Lord, it is a new day. There are new beginnings. God, we are so thankful for what this represents and what we receive here. Lord God, thank you. Thank you. And together we receive this cup. In Jesus' name, let's partake together, church. Amen of that church. Praise God. Let's all stand together. thank you that you are the way you are the truth and you are the life and Lord as we prepare to leave and we go on our way home thank you we're reminded that as we get into our cars of your word here today when we look at that steering wheel we're reminded Lord God we're to give that to you so I pray you'll help us to live that way now. What an amazing thing that can happen in our lives. So bring blessing here in Jesus' name. Amen? God bless you, church.